Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inspiratia's Joint Venture Podcast. My name is Oliver Carr, Inspiratia's Senior Hydrogen Analyst. Today, we'll be talking to Sterling Habits from Green Giraffe, all about the transition to green hydrogen in the UK and where offshore wind fits in that picture. But first, I'm pleased to announce the release of the second report in our Green Hydrogen Index series, Market Focus on the United Kingdom. The Green Hydrogen Index uses consistent criteria to analyse the development of hydrogen markets around the world. This report dives deeply into the production and consumption capabilities of the United Kingdom for green hydrogen and critically assesses the UK's hydrogen strategy. Topics that we'll be discussing on the podcast today. Links to the report are in the show notes below. Free to view for Inspiratia subscribers. Now, Sterling Habits is a standout in the world of sustainable financing for the energy transition. He now works at Financial Advisors Green Giraffe, where he specialises in offshore wind and hydrogen. We'll be discussing UK energy policy, including the changing emphasis of energy security, and getting into the nitty-gritty of how offshore wind, and particularly floating wind, could be the key to unlocking hydrogen in the UK. So, without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, Sterling. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, To be clear, we're interviewing you in your personal capacity, and the views you express may not be the views of your employer or colleagues. Yes, thank you, Oliver. Well, could you give the audience a brief overview of the work you do at Green Giraffe? Yes, of course. So uh, Green Giraffe is a financial advisory firm focused exclusively on renewable energy, and I work on transactions to raise debt or equity finance for renewable energy projects. Now, I know that you've been involved in a number of proposals that combine green hydrogen with offshore wind, which is what we want to talk about today. Um, are there any of those deals that you can share with us? Yes, Oliver, there is one. Um, we, we are working on a variety of different hydrogen projects. In the UK, um, it is in the public domain, so I can say so. We are working with a project called the ERM Dolphin Project. Um, ERM is a leading international sustainability consultancy, and they've received support from the UK government to develop hydrogen from floating wind projects. So I should be able to say a little bit more about that during our call. Fantastic. Well, I want to talk a little bit about policy to begin with. And uh, the big news of the last few months has been that the UK government's hydrogen strategy has been finally released. And it talks a big game on uh, the future of hydrogen in the UK. What was your take on it? Uh, yes, it's it's a it's a big um, it's a big step forward. This is the first time the UK has uh, launched a hydrogen strategy, like many countries. I think it was launched in August last year, uh, so it's less than a year old. It's a great first step. It contains some um, very important elements. So, for example, it does include a consultation on the use of a potential revenue support mechanism in the future for hydrogen projects, which could be similar to the UK contracts for different scheme which has been very successful in driving the UK offshore wind industry. The hydrogen strategy also includes some dedicated funds to support some early stage projects, early stage hydrogen projects, such as the the Net Zero Hydrogen Fund. So overall, it's a great first step, um, and we now need to build on this momentum. Um, The strategy has been criticised for uh, perhaps lumping green and blue hydrogen too closely together, in the uh, approach to business models uh, in the consultations. Uh, Would you agree with that criticism? Um, 
I would say the debate about green and blue hydrogen will probably work itself out over time. Uh, blue hydrogen does require some sort of carbon capture and sequestration, and there is some risk associated with, with that. Um, and then also, ultimately, it's a question of, of cost and economics. Um, we do see that renewables, that the, the cost of renewables has reduced rapidly and will continue to reduce. So um, my personal view is that it may be green hydrogen that win, wins the race, but um, I think time will tell. Now, a big focus of UK government policy recently has been a shift towards energy security, particularly in the aftermath of uh, the tragedy that's happening in Ukraine at the moment and continues. Do you think that developments like this make renewable-based hydrogen look more appealing to investors? Yes, absolutely. No question of that. Um, the the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis has really highlighted Europe's dependence on, in particular, on gas. Um, here in the UK, we don't use much Russian Russian gas uh, compared to some other U uh, European countries, for example, Germany. Uh, but the oil and gas markets are global, uh, they are international, and that does mean that we're still exposed to the impacts of events like that in the Ukraine in, and, and the impacts on oil and gas prices. So the UK does have a now as part of its hydrogen strategy to reach uh, up to 10 gigawatts of hydrogen by 2030, with at least half of that from green hydrogen. Um, and that is uh, a move towards becoming less dependent on, on foreign energy. The, the UK analysis suggests that we could replace 20 to 30% of the UK's energy consumption by hydrogen uh, by 2050. So that would replace much of the current gas use and decouple us from dependency on, on gas prices and volatility of the gas markets. To make that transition, though, there need to be the off-takers in industry willing to uh, make the change towards green hydrogen. What are their options for procuring hydrogen at the best price today? Well, first, I would say that um, many, many off-takers uh, are, are interested in hydrogen, particularly large users of energy and particularly large users of gas. So um, no shortage of interest in, in green hydrogen as a as a low or zero carbon solution. Um, the types of off-takers that we, we would see uh, is typically your heavy industry. So petrochemicals, plastics, steel refineries. We do actually have some quite large steel refineries still here in the UK, for example. Uh, oil refineries, um, heavy transport, perhaps trains and shipping, um, and any, any sectors with large heating needs. So all of these sectors are quite difficult to decarbonize using only electricity and replacing the current gas use with hydrogen is, um, is an obvious way forward. Um, in terms of uh, how they go about uh, pursuing that, we would, I would probably suggest that um, they should engage as early as possible with developers of green hydrogen projects um, and, and, and um, try to secure the arrangements to offtake green hydrogen and also work with those project developers in planning for changes to infrastructure both in their own um, facilities and in interconnections. So the types of infrastructure could be, for example, pipeline routes or um, equipment changes in factories to burners and so on. So I think it's very much about um, an ongoing dialogue with, with the energy generators, the future producers of green hydrogen, and then also uh, planning for the infrastructure changes.
The number of projects that have found off-takers so far is fairly limited, but we're starting to see some movement. Which off-taking sectors do you think have the biggest potential in the short term? Um, we have already so we have already seen some uh, transition to green hydrogen here in the UK. We do have, for example, some bus fleets running on on hydrogen already. Um, and then uh, there are some pilot heating schemes as well, including even some district heating schemes, some small ones uh, running off hydrogen. Um, so those are two sectors which are really proven that they can convert. I would also say the next on the list is probably industrial applications which are already using hydrogen. Hydrogen is an industrial gas and there is a, already a, a long established market for hydrogen. Most of that is blue hydrogen originating from fossil fuels, uh, but that can quite readily be switched to green hydrogen. So that's those are some of the low hanging fruits. I would say, in, in, um, in more immediate offtake of green hydrogen. Turning to offshore wind, where you have a lot of your own industry experience, I know, do you think the UK is well positioned to capitalise on a growing green hydrogen sector in terms of production? Yes, absolutely. I think um, offshore wind is the obvious uh, area to turn to for large-scale green hydrogen production in the UK. Um, UK has some of the best offshore wind resources in the world, actually and is still uh, a world leader in, in, in installed capacity of offshore wind. We don't really appreciate that in the UK, but we are uh, and have been the world leader for many years. Um, we are uh, rapidly being caught up with countries like China and Germany, not far behind, uh, but still the UK is in, in, in the front. Um, let's take an example of uh, Scotland. So uh, great offshore wind resources, a huge coastline, very windy. Um, in last year, they com Scotland completed the Scotwind leasing process, which was a leasing process run by the Crown Estate to award um, new licenses for offshore wind farms around Scot Scottish waters. They awarded um, 17 new offshore wind farms, and that is expected to result in an additional capacity of 25 gigawatts of um, energy. That's a huge amount of new energy coming online. And that um, integrating that into the Scottish electricity grid is actually quite a, a difficult task. Um, Scotland is not so populated and it's a, it's a big country uh, and the electricity grid is thinner than it would be down here in England. So um, the idea of some of these offshore wind farms being used to produce hydrogen and that hydrogen then rather than going into the electricity grid is used for heating or other domestic purposes or export to Northern Europe, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, replacing gas, replacing Russian gas. Uh, that's, that's all very exciting. So I think uh, the UK are ideally positioned for um, hydrogen from offshore wind. Why do you think that offshore wind is the right sector to scale up green hydrogen production in the UK? This, um, this has largely got to do with the availability of land and offshore resources in the UK. Uh, green hydrogen comes from renewable energy, and the two main forms of renewable energy out there at the moment is solar and, and wind energy. Um, we don't have a lot of land in the UK to cover with solar panels, and uh, we also don't have a lot of land to put onshore wind turbines on. Also, the UK's new energy strategy doesn't uh, give a lot of new support to onshore wind turbines in comparison to offshore wind turbines. So if we put it all together, 
and we take into account that we've got a huge coastline, very windy conditions out at sea, limited land, it absolutely makes sense to go offshore with offshore wind to generate large-scale energy and also to generate large-scale green hydrogen from, from uh, those offshore wind farms. The very, the, the very same logic has been used for electricity production today. So the biggest renewable energy projects are the offshore wind projects. The UK has a good record of expanding its fixed bottom offshore wind capacity, but those projects have limits too. Do you see floating offshore wind as being preferable for certain green hydrogen projects going forward? Yes, absolutely. I think floating offshore wind is the next new frontier. Um, we already seen the first floating offshore wind projects coming online. We're seeing a lot of development in floating offshore wind. In the Scott wind leasing process, which I referred to earlier, it's generally accepted that um, a significant portion of those projects will be floating offshore wind. Um, and it's also embedded in the UK's uh, in UK strategy. So the UK recently announced its new energy strategy. Uh, the new targets are a very ambitious 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. And they specifically refer to up to five gigawatts of floating offshore wind among that. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, a far larger, larger percentage. The, the key advantages of going floating in offshore wind is that you can move the wind farms further out, further from the shore into deeper waters with more stable wind and stronger wind. And you have a lot of other advantages, for example, with permitting. Uh, the shipping lanes, for example, often tend to be closer to the shore, closer to coastlines. Uh, fishing tends to happen closer to the shores. Uh, marine conservation areas, uh, military zones, uh, all of these constraints on, on putting onshore wind, offshore wind farms in place, they um, are, are less as you go further away. So there's many reasons, not least, of course, the visibility. We, 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 don't, we don't see the wind farms as they go further from the shore. So many reasons why going further from the shore makes a lot of sense and um, is likely to be the future, especially with floating offshore wind farms. When is it more viable to connect uh, wind farms via transition cables to generate green hydrogen on land versus green hydrogen generated at the wind turbines and then piped back to shore? A very relevant question, Oliver. The answer to that has partly got to do with the distance involved. Um, and in general, the longer the distance, the further the offshore wind farm is located from the shore, the more attractive it is to connect it via a hydrogen pipeline to the shore rather than an electrical cable. Um, that's, that's purely an economics question. So over longer distances, hydrogen pipelines are cheaper than electrical cables. Electrical cables are actually quite complex, sophisticated um, pieces of equipment uh, with various metals that are used and insulation and so on. And hydrogen uh, gas pipelines are, are actually simpler and, and cheaper over longer distances. So the answer to the question of whether one produces the hydrogen at the offshore wind farm or whether one produces it at the shore has a lot to do with the answer to that, that, that question of the connection. And... If, if the wind farm is uh, far out from the shore, then it makes more sense to produce the hydrogen at the wind farm and then uh, transport the energy via hydrogen in a hydrogen pipeline back to the shore. Um, it's also worth noting that there are uh, electrical losses to take into account, which would form part of the whole consideration. Over, over distances, you do have electrical resistance in, in cables and um, you do lose some of the electrical energy um, uh, as a result. So main message for 
offshore wind farms far from the shore, it makes sense to produce the hydrogen at the wind farm and transport it via hydrogen pipeline back to the shore. So offshore wind farms generally connect to a single substation, which is then in turn connected via cables to land. Would this be similar for hydrogen projects? That's a very, a very good question, Oliver. So, so to recap, if we have a large wind farm in the sea, generally we would have electrical cables from each wind turbine to one central point, and that central point will be the offshore substation, uh, which will have a variety of electrical equipment on it. It will be a, a single uh, installation, and then that will have a connection from, from that point through to the shore. So the question is, do we need the same arrangement for a hydrogen-producing wind farm? And the answer is, actually, we don't. Um, we don't need a central um, platform to, to collect uh, the electricity and produce hydrogen. Uh, it is possible, and that is the project that we're currently working on, for example, the ERM Dolphin project that I mentioned earlier in our call. Um, that is the concept that this project uses. The, so the basic concept is each individual turbine then has all the equipment at that turbine to produce hydrogen and the connection between the, tur the turbines and to the shore is all based on, on hydrogen pipelines without the interconnecting electricity cables. So you, um, you reduce the cost of having to put in place the electricity cables and, and instead only have the hydrogen pipelines. Uh, we think that that is, that is probably the optimum solution. What are the challenges with moving hydrogen production from shore to uh, a, what's generally understood to be a more hostile marine environment? Uh, also, also a very good question, uh, Oliver. I'd say the probably the two main considerations are the, the weather and then also the motion of the if it's a floating if it's a floating platform the motion of the platform. Um, so basically, it's a case of designing the equipment to, in a way, as to protect it from the um, more more corrosive environment, the salt, the salt water, uh, potentially more uh, severe storms, and so on. Um, moving the equipment, for example, above the splash zone, so that it's um, it's high enough that waves don't crash onto the platform. And then also, it's also one also has to take into account that there's always some slight motion uh, on on floating platforms, and the equipment needs to be able to accommodate any movement or motion. Um, but all of this is not um, unprecedented. The the oil and gas sector has uh, decades ago already managed to work out how to put all sorts of quite sophisticated equipment, uh, pumps and compressors and uh, uh, electric, all sorts of electrical equipment on oil and gas platforms and protected from the weather and protected from motion. So um, I think this is purely a, an, an engineering uh, um, solution and, and, and will be solved, is, is being solved. Speaking of oil and gas, do you think there are synergies and lessons to be learned from uh, the oil and gas sector as it relates to offshore wind and offshore hydrogen production? What role do you see for oil and gas? Uh, thanks, Oliver. Yes, I think that um, hydrogen production from offshore wind fits incredibly well with the oil and gas sector, um, far better than uh, than the, the synergy between the uh, traditional onshore renewable sector and the oil and gas sector. So I can see a lot more in common between um, 
offshore oil and gas and offshore hydrogen production, for example, compared to the oil and gas sector and, and, and solar projects. Um, if we take a deeper dive into that, we already have a, a, a significant network of offshore oil and gas production in various parts of the world. Here in, in Northern Europe, in the North Sea, we have a whole network of offshore oil and gas installations connected by a network of subsea gas pipelines. So um, we already have within the oil and gas sector the expertise of um, subsea gas pipelines, of uh, pumping pumping gases. We have uh, ex, uh, gas storage um, and handling expertise in the oil and gas sector. Hydrogen is, of course, a gas. The, um, the trading activities as well, um, trading of, of gas uh, in the future uh, can, could include and probably already does to some extent trading of hydrogen. And there's also a natural synergy with the clients for the offshore oil and gas sector. So um, on the gas side, uh, many of those clients that are using gas and buying them from the oil and gas sector at the moment, uh, it could in future be the same clients that the same uh, producers are selling uh, hydrogen to. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of synergies. Um, we could also go even further. Potentially in the future, some of the uh, production of of hydrogen from offshore wind uh, could potentially be um, offloaded into into ships, perhaps directly. If it's going to be exported, maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be the hydrogen doesn't necessarily need to be piped to the shore first. Perhaps we could have uh, loading of ships directly at the offshore wind farm. That's not a, such a far-fetched concept at all. In fact, we already have something very similar in the offshore oil and gas sector. Uh, we have um, vessels called FPSOs in the oil and gas sector already. That's floating production storage and offloading vessels, which, um, which are basically located exactly where the extraction happens. And the, um, the oil and gas is stored in a vessel, in a, in a ship, at the site and offloaded onto other ships uh, at the site without having a, a direct connection to the land. So I could see that there's a, a lot of synergies and um, a lot of the ideas from the offshore oil and gas sector could be adopted in, in an offshore hydrogen sector in the future. How do you build a case for moving hydrogen production away from fixed bottom offshore towards floating offshore when at present the prices for floating offshore are obviously a lot higher? The reality is that floating is more expensive than fixed at the moment. Um, that's always the case with new technology. The expectation is, and I'm sure it will, it will pan out, that the cost of floating offshore wind will come down dramatically. Um, we've seen that in other renewable energy sectors. The, the the early solar panels were a lot more expensive than we are able to produce solar panels now. The costs have come down dramatically. The costs of onshore wind turbines have come down. The costs of fixed bottom offshore wind turbines have come down. The costs of batteries have come down. So it's very much a scale question. And um, and in, so in terms of the fi financing and the economics, yes, the first offshore wind farms will be uh, expensive in comparison, the first floating offshore wind farms will be expen expensive in comparison to fixed bottom, and the first hydrogen from floating offshore wind farms will be expensive. Uh, but the more of them we build, the more scale is achieved, and uh, the cheaper the um, energy can be produced. So, if green hydrogen is going to be such a large part of the energy mix of the UK and Europe in general, how can we be sure that 
Offshore wind is going to be a huge part of that. And why not perhaps cheaper technologies like solar today? And how can we, we be sure that it won't be imported fuels, for example, from uh, regions around the world where renewables are cheaper? Very, very good and relevant question, Oliver. Um, I think a, a part of the answer is energy, energy security. I think with the Ukraine-Russia crisis that we currently have, uh, Europe has learned a, a very valuable lesson of uh, what exactly it could mean to be reliant on uh, other regions for energy supply. So I think having a large portion of uh, secure domestic energy uh, production is is going to be strategically very important and recognized as very important in the future. Um, so that by itself is a case for um, limiting the amount of uh, dependence we have on imported energy from other regions in the world. Um, that by itself is not the complete answer, of course, because there's economics at play as well. Um, the economics still have to pan out, I would say. The, uh, the difference between uh, producing solar on uh, producing hydrogen onshore via solar or um, offshore by offshore wind. I think in the in the case of Northern Europe, uh, the the option of solar onshore is not not really um, an option. It's we don't have a lot of land in the in, in in the north of Europe close to the industrial centers to put to cover with solar, and we don't have a lot of uh, good solar uh, radiation. So. In the case north of Europe, the big sources of renewable energy of the future will be offshore wind. And if it has to be domestic uh, energy production for a large part, then I think that settles it, that we will have a lot of uh, green hydrogen from offshore wind. Um, we'll have to see how the rest of it pans out and the economics of shipping green hydrogen around the world. There may one day be a global green hydrogen um, market, which uh, is comparable with the world's oil and gas markets now, with shipping of green hydrogen all around the world. And we'll have to see how that pans out. Uh, but certainly we want, I would say, a large portion of green hydrogen in the future to be produced domestically. Sterling Habits, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Adam. It's been a pleasure. My thanks to Sterling for his great insights and uh, best of luck with the ERM Dolphin projects. That's it from us today. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Remember to rate and share this podcast. If you have any feedback or want to get involved yourself, email us at podcasts at inspiratia.com. Don't forget to check out our Green Hydrogen Index report releasing today. And if you enjoyed the topics discussed today, then come along to our conferences. Join us in London for Offshore Wind on the 10th of May or our Hydrogen Decade Summit on the 22nd of June. More links and details in the show notes. Hope to see you there. So until next time, so long.